From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, it's Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein. Today, the Georgia Supreme Court upheld Georgia's anti-abortion law, but it doesn't end the legal fight or the battle over abortion rights at the ballot box. I'm Patricia Murphy. A fourth defendant in the Fulton County election interference case has pled guilty. But could more state charges be on the way for others? I'm AJC Washington correspondent Tia Mitchell. House Republicans will try again today to elect a speaker. Why there's little optimism they'll succeed. And I'm Bill Nygut. What revelations are contained in an almost 400-page GBI report on the Coffee County election breach? We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Guys, we have a double-decker of breaking news this morning. We're going to talk to Maya T. Prabhu about the abortion ruling from the Georgia Supreme Court. We'll also hear from Jenna Ellis an emotional court testimony after her guilty plea. It's a quite the morning. And there also happens to still be no Speaker of the House. Oh, yeah. Forgot so about we'll that. We'll talk about that, too. <laughs> <laughs> This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Well, Georgia's top court ruled this morning that the state's anti-abortion law will remain in place, meaning that most abortions will continue to be banned once a doctor can detect fetal cardiac activity, which is typically around six weeks of pregnancy and before many women know they're pregnant. This doesn't end the legal battle since the court's 6-1 decision didn't rule on the constitutionality of the new limits. We're joined here by Maya T. Prabhu, who has been following this law and the legal fallout from the very beginning. Help us unpack it all, Maya. This was a win for supporters of, of the law, but it isn't over yet. Right. Yes. You know, the <clears throat> Judge McBurney in, in Fulton Superior Court said that um, when he ruled last year that he was only ruling on this concept of void ab initio, which means their argument was the, the law could not stand because Roe v. Wade was the law of the land in 2019 when Georgia passed our law here. Um, Judge McBurney agreed with abortion rights advocates and said, I'm not ruling on the constitutionality of um, of the law, but I am um, I am just saying that it was void ab initio. So now the Supreme Court has said that they are going to send um, you know send this decision back to McBurney, where he's going to rule on whether or not the um, arguments of the state Supreme Court being more uh, the privacy rights under the state Supreme Court being more expansive than the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, whether or not McBurney believes that that argument holds up and and then he'll make a decision on that at some point. 
So, Maya, tell us a little bit more about the people who were bringing suit against this law. We know that there are a coalition of different groups. Uh, tell us how this, uh, how the challenges got together, and who exactly is who exactly is doing it. So the, um, it, you know, it's a it's a coalition of groups. It's the uh, Sister Song, um, Women of Color Reprodu- Reproductive Justice Organization, uh, who provides. Um, resources and help to people who are um, in need, you know, working on their reproductive, uh, reproductive systems. And then a coalition of other organizations such as Planned Parenthood and abortion providers like Feminist Women's Healthcare. And then some individual abortion providers also uh, came together to, to challenge this law. Maya, uh, it's Bill Nygut. Um, just to be clear, so the, the state Supreme Court was asked to rule strictly, as you pointed out, on whether or not Georgia had a right to pass a law severely restricting abortion while Roe v. Wade was still in place. And, of course, the state Supreme Court said they could, overturning what uh, Judge McBurney had done. The next step, uh, are you saying, is going to be for the litigants in this case to now go back to McBurney and argue that Georgia's privacy law, which is stronger than the U.S. Constitution's privacy law, um, should nullify the six weeks uh, restriction, restrictive law. Have I got that right? Yeah, that that is about right. But the it remains unclear whether or not um, there will be more arguments because all of all of these arguments were made when the, they had the two day trial last year in in um, Superior Court. So it's unclear if the judge will ask for more briefs or if you'll call folks back in to make more arguments. You know, we don't really know that part of what's next, but we do know that Judge McBurney will consider these um, consider these other arguments and at some point make a ruling. One other quick question. The 11th Circuit got involved in this as well. There was a, a, a case moving through federal court as well. How does that fit into all of this? Um, this is completely separate. The, the federal court... Uh, made their the the appeals court made their ruling shortly after um, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and the <clears throat> and then that is when this the the challenge to the law started over um, in state court. So these are parallel but separate. Hey Maya, um, so it sounds like for right now the status quo remains, which is this roughly six-week abortion ban in Georgia. Um, but does anything change? Is it, you know, or is it just everything just stays where we are right now because of this ruling? Um, everything continues where we are right now. The only time we've had a change was when McBurney, uh, Judge McBurney initially ruled that, you know, ruled in favor of the abortion rights advocates. And we had about a week, maybe a little more than a week when the the law had been, you know, was not being enforced. And then the state Supreme Court came in and said, no, no, this should stay in place while we consider it up here. So now everything just continues to remain the same with the law being intact, where most abortions are uh, banned at the detection of fetal cardiac activity, which typically around six weeks six weeks, but can also be as early as four sometimes. And and you mentioned that there are other arguments these plaintiffs made that McBurney might now, you know, 
have more court hearings or court proceedings regarding the other, um, you know, aspects of the law that they're, they say, invalidated, were, of all the arguments the plaintiffs made, was this argument that the law, you know, was improper on its face, was that considered the strongest? Or are there other arguments to come now that the constitutionality of the law will be considered that were always considered the stronger arguments? You know, it's, it's unclear, you know, who thought what argument was the strongest. Um, I think that all of the arguments were made last year, which included the, uh, the, the right to privacy and the harm that, you know, each side says that there is harm. So uh, the abortion rights advocates say it is har- it's harmful to force people to have children if they don't want to, if they've been through something traumatic. Um, and then the state said that the it is harmful. It always harms a, a third party. It, like abortion uh, always harms a third party, whether it's meaning the embryo or, or the fetus. And so it's kind of these, you know, like we saw at the Supreme Court, these kind of two different who which rights, I guess, uh, trump the other. Mm-hmm. It, and it's up to the court to decide. Maya, before the law went into effect after Roe v. Wade fell, the law in Georgia was a 20-week abortion ban. And since then, you have done an immense amount of reporting about what the new normal looks like here in Georgia for women. I'd love it if you could go into um, some detail about what that means right now. Um, You reported that some women are going out of state. Some women are, in fact, having the children that they said they might have otherwise aborted. It's changed a lot, obviously, for um, abortion providers here in this state. Tell us about some of the reporting that stands out to you. Yeah, so um, I think the law went into effect in late July last year. And in that second, r- roughly less than half of the year, um, a, the you know number of abortions fell by about half of the number of abortions. Uh, I did some reporting looking at, you know, how many abortions per month were being performed before the ban went into effect and after the ban went in, into effect. And it went from about 4,000 a month to about 2,000 a month. So we've seen this, you know, vast drop in abortions occurring. Something that I um, was interested in reporting, but, you know, we have to wait because of the way uh, the way biology works was how many like if Georgia's birth rate had gone up. Uh, so we had to, you know, the law went to effect last July. Uh, pregnancies that had to continue because the law was in effect. Those babies would have started being born in April. And so I wanted to get some more data points uh, before I go and ask the Department of Public Health for those numbers. Because I'm curious if, like you said, it's just abortions went down in Georgia, but they're just being had in other states. Or if, you know, there's this big increase in, in the birth rate and, and, and how many babies are ending up being born in Georgia. Maya, let's talk about the political fallout. Um, this, was, this is a very conservative Supreme Court. Eight of the nine justices were appointed by Republican governors or, 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 are, or, or, or known as very conservative. Um, so it doesn't mean we knew what this ruling was going to be, but it means it wasn't really a surprise. Um, but you have to think that Governor Kemp is breathing a huge sigh of relief right now because it was such a it was such a haul. It was such an, a, a very 
you know, difficult legislative battle way back in 2019 to pass these restrictions in the first place, passed with one vote to spare in the Georgia House. It was an emotional, fraught debate. A number of Republicans either walked out or several of them ended up voting against the, the, the measure. Uh, th- this was not um, you know, we don't know if, if it'll end up being ultimately struck down, but we do know that the law remains in place and that it doesn't look like Georgia lawmakers will go into another session um, trying to push for these this this ban to be uh, put back in place. Yeah, you know, like you said, uh, the, the statement that came from the governor today was, you know, this victory represents one more step in ending this litigation, right? So we still don't know what the final say will be, if there ever will be. I feel like this will just continue to go on and on and on. But um, it's unclear what 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 the final uh, decision will be. But yeah, definitely, I don't think Republicans want to go back into a legislative session and try to pass a law like this again, because numbers have shifted. Like you said, it passed by one vote in the House last time around. They have fewer Republicans in the House now, and it's just, um, I don't know that I would say unlikely, but it, it's a difficult lift to, to get this through the legislature again. So I know that, you know, the governor and, and folks on uh, the um, on, on this side of the law, folks that support the law don't want to have to go through it again. And they are continuing to be hopeful that the courts will stay on their side. And my Democrats and abortion rights supporters are saying that there will be um, payback at the ballot box. President Biden's campaign manager, Julia Chavez Rodriguez, uh, she called the Georgia Supreme Court decision to uphold the anti-abortion law a, quote, direct result of Donald Trump, Brian Kemp, and MAGA Republicans' attacks on a woman's fundamental freedom to make her own health care decisions. You know, we also heard similar calls uh, after Roe v. Wade was struck down last year from Democrats saying it would energize voters at the ballot box. This seems like it's it's going to be yet another kind of trend underlying next year's election. Yeah, definitely. You know, this they did say that this would be the rallying cry. This would be the, the issue that, that voters would uh, be most at the forefront of their minds if they went to the ballot box. I don't know that that turned out to be the case, um, but uh, it's definitely um it's definitely something that people are thinking about and it's definitely something that candidates especially democrats are trying to make a central issue as they're going to be heading into elections next year i i also think though that there are certainly many republicans who would like to push abortion into the background just here's an interesting example i thought um Sarah Chamberlain is the president and CEO of the Republican Main Street Partnership. And she said when they were, she was talking to Republicans in 2022 um, about abortion. They said, no, 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 abortion is not going to be the issue. Women are more concerned about their pocketbooks. Sarah Chamberlain says that's not what happened in the midterm elections. And now this year, the uh, NRSC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, is encouraging Republicans to state their opposition to a national abortion ban and instead support reasonable limits on late-term abortion, which is a very interesting and different um, uh, way of framing the issue than uh, they had framed it previously. Yeah, there had been a lot of, you know, especially in in Georgia, a lot of wait and see. Let's see what the um, let's see what the courts decide. Um, but yeah, there there may be on the national. You know, we have a uh, two years ago we didn't have, or last year, almost two years ago we didn't have 
you know, national elections at play, but now we have these national elections at play. And so, you know, I, I can see why there's more of an interest for uh, a more of a push for Republicans to say whether or not they're supportive of a nationwide ban. You know, what I've always found interesting about that is up until the Dobbs decision last year, the argument had been this is a state's rights issue, right? This is the argument from Republicans and other, you know, anti-abortion um, advocates. This is a state's rights issue. The state should be able to one be the ones to make the decisions on how abortions are restricted. And then... Um, as soon as the as soon as the ruling came out, we started hearing from these same Republicans who said that we need a national ban. So, um, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out next year. Yeah, Patricia, on that on that point, Republican leaders here have long said they won't consider new abortion restrictions until this legal challenge is decided. There's a hue and cry from a lot of uh, uh, anti-abortion supporters after Roe v. Wade was 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 reversed. Uh, was struck down last year that now it's a chance for Republicans in Georgia to enact even tougher limits. Um, we still don't have a final resolution uh, to that legal challenge, although this is a victory for for Governor Kemp and his allies. We still don't have a final a final verdict there. So presumably we might hear Governor Kemp and others continue to say, okay, we're not going to pursue new new restrictions. We're not going to even think about that debate until this underlying legal challenge is resolved. Yeah, it does feel like the legal challenge gives state Republican leaders a little bit of leeway to say, well, not now, now's not the time. But the energy in the Republican Party is not uh, to take a wait and see approach. The energy in the Republican Party um, is very conservative on this issue. And so even if you're not talking about <clears throat> a complete abortion ban, you will see proposals to limit um, medication abortions, limit those medications uh, from being sent through the mail, requiring to in-person doctor's visits to um, access that. I think there will be other ways to limit abortion that will absolutely be brought forward no matter what's happening. Um, and politically, I think it's less clear than we think it is. Um, in the state of Georgia, it was very clear who uh, was who had pushed forward abortion restrictions, who was Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams, who was very clearly uh, planning to lift abortion restrictions uh, in in any way that she could. And that issue just did not resonate in 2022 in the way that Democrats really firmly believed it would, even in the suburbs where suburban women just did not gravitate to that issue the way they did toward other issues. And so I think it is, it's a lot dicier than we assume it to be, even when you look at polling and show that showed us very clearly that that state abortion ban was not popular here in Georgia, particularly among women. When it, it when it comes to the ballot box and you're comparing specific candidates at a specific time in history, it's not always so clear. Mm. I I don't know, Patricia. I might disagree a little bit because not necessarily in Georgia, to your point, but I mean, look at the twenty. 22 election cycle where House Republicans were expecting a huge wave. They only picked up a handful of seats and we've seen the fallout from that. And in other states, there have been abortion referendums that have passed to protect rights to abortions. There have been some key, um, uh, I think, you know, some key races in, in swing or even Republican leaning states that have gone Democrats way where abortion was a central issue. So I, I think you're right that it's not as clear cut, but I think that Democrats would probably argue that they've seen some success um, since the 
since the overturn of Roe v. Wade, when they make abortion a central issue at the ballot box, and the question will be, does that translate in a state like Georgia? So I want to bring Maya back in. Maya, you're the one who covers this most closely for us. Do you think, you know, um, this legal challenge isn't going away? It's just entering a new phase. As we turn to 2024, um, how big of an issue do you think abortion will be as, as we look at the election in Georgia? You know, it's really hard to say because, like you said, I, I cover this very closely. So I'm like deeply immersed in this world. A lot of the people who I talk to on a regular basis are, you know, have strong opinions and are, are advocates on one side or the other. And so kind of like in, in the in my in my work bubble, this is a very, very important issue. I don't know that, you know, like you said, I don't know that that's necessarily going to be the issue that is front of mind when folks you know, head to the polls. So it's difficult to say just because I think my uh, worldview is a little skewed because of the people who I, you know, spend my days talking to for when I'm reporting these articles. Um, It is very important to them and they feel very strongly one way or the other. But, you know, it's, it's difficult to say if it's going to be something that goes out to the rest of the state. My the last uh, a poll that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution conducted earlier this year showed that voters were relatively split over how restrictive access to abortion should be. But 49% of those asked said they think Georgia should make it easier to obtain an abortion. 24% said regulations should stay the way they are. And 21% said it should be more difficult to get an abortion. Uh, you know, poll after poll after poll showed that this issue was very important to voters, but the economy, but public safety sort of trumped it. Economy was the number one issue in most polls that we saw just in Georgia and also around the nation last year. And we saw how Republicans were reacting to that. Governor Kemp on the campaign trail last year, he wouldn't shy away from his support for this law, but he would lead with the economy. He'd lead with public safety. He'd lead with other issues. Oftentimes, he would only even talk about the anti-abortion law if someone like me, a reporter, asked him about it or if a constituent, if, if, if a Georgia voter asked him about it, he wouldn't necessarily bring it up. That's the way he's played it. But when he, when he would be asked about it, he'd say, yeah, I supported, uh, you know, I, I followed through on a campaign promise. I vowed to, t- to pass one of the toughest abortion limits in the nation, and I did so. Yeah, uh, definitely. We saw that with... Um Republicans who were running, uh, focusing on other issues um, when they were campaigning last year, and Democrats making abortion a, a front and center issue as they as they were running. So it's definitely um, it's definitely the case where you know it might not be Republican candidates' uh, favorite thing to talk about on the campaign trailer in a some speech, but um, that doesn't mean that they're backing down from their um, their support of the law. It just means that maybe they don't want it to be front of mind for any of those more moderate uh, people, moderate women who may be in the crowds. Maya, uh, Patricia and Greg, you all are really in touch with legislators in a way that um, I'm not quite as keyed into them as you are. But I can imagine this, depending on how it plays out, as a looming battle between the state Senate and the state House, right? You've got very you've got, got uh, the Burt Jones faction in the state Senate, very, very conservative, and, and he has his followers there who uh, will line up with him. And in, on the other hand, in the House a little more concern about social hot button issues and how they can play out. What was the, in the house, it won the abortion one, vote one, one by one vote. 
So I'm just wondering if we might see a battle between the Senate and the House uh, on this, or if there are enough real conservative uh, members of the House now that they'll push it through, too. You know, I think I haven't had a chance to speak with anyone yet. <laughs> you know, it's been a couple hours since the uh, the ruling came out. But I think that, that even though folks who support the law are considering this a win, I think that they're still going to continue to say, we're going to wait and see, you know, not it's not a done deal yet i don't you know i don't think we're gonna try to pass anything new now if that if it does happen i can see a space where um the senate passes something similar to you know if the law gets struck down i can see the senate passing something similar we even have the the lawmaker who was the sponsor of the bill in 2019 who was in the house who's now in the senate right so i can see him bringing it back um and it getting out of the senate it just you know, like you said, it becomes a question of whether or not Republicans in the House will have the numbers to get it across mm-hmm. the finish line. And Maya, most of the Republicans I've heard from so far just praising the court's ruling rather than saying they'll, they'll take additional steps, which I think we're going to continue to hear because the underlying, you know, there's still more legal arguments to go. Uh, we got to let you go back to reporting. I know you've been very busy. Thank you so much for joining us. And a reminder uh, that all Maya's work can be found on AJC.com, including the breaking news story. And one more thing before we go to break, Andrea Young of the ACLU told Maya that to be clear, this battle continues. Be clear, the right to abortion is on the ballot in 2024. Just ahead, Jenna Ellis just became the fourth co-defendant in the Fulton County election interference case to plead guilty to charges. We'll talk about another win for Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis when we get back. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. Attorney Jenna Ellis just became the fourth defendant in the Fulton County election interference case to strike a deal with prosecutors. The felony count stems from her testimony before a Georgia Senate subcommittee way back in December 3rd, 2020. Along with co-defendants Rudy Giuliani and Ray Smith, Ella said that she knowingly, willingly, and unlawfully made false statements about election fraud in Georgia, according to the brand new charging document. Let's hear what she said in court just a few moments ago. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. Patricia, those are some pretty strong words. 
Yes. And Jenna Ellis is a very familiar figure to anybody who was covering the 2020 elections and the challenges to those elections in the weeks and months and years afterward, because she was a constant presence, almost a shadow to Rudy Giuliani. Everywhere Giuliani went, Jenna Ellis was right behind him. She was a part of that legal team that was making all of these challenges. And specifically, the state Senate hearing that she has pled uh, guilty to aiding and abetting false statements. It's a fun fact. It's actually not illegal to make a false statement at a Georgia General Assembly hearing. Everyone should always keep that in mind when they're watching these hearings. So that in itself is not a crime. But the uh, the ramifications of those false statements were so intense and severe. Um, it has been linked to this huge conspiracy case. Um, what were those um, effects. Uh, this was where Rudy Giuliani played what he said was the smoking gun of proof of election fraud. Um, they named Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shay Moss. Um, when Elena Parent spoke up to challenge Rudy Giuliani in this hearing, um, she later had death threats against her and her family. Um, there were comments online taking polls about how she should be executed after her role in this hearing, because these were all broadcast live on OAN, on kind of far-right media. And so the effects of this hearing just spiraled totally out of control for anybody who was mentioned or participated in refuting the claims that Ellis and Giuliani were making. And so um, I'm not surprised that charges were included related to that hearing because it was an outsized event in the events that followed. The fact that Ellis is now the fourth defendant to fall, I think, is hugely important. You kind of feel the momentum going this way. She has said publicly that she was really struggling to pay her legal bills. Giuliani was being of no help to her. You could see her separating from Giuliani and under that kind of duress. And here we are. I mean, this is a young woman who um, is facing a, a long time of not being able to really make money as an attorney from now on unless something really changes for her. You know, we mentioned the other day when uh, uh, first Sidney Powell, then Kenneth Chesborough, uh, and before them Scott Hall, all decided to take plea deals that um, the, this notion that Fonnie Willis, who was being criticized for this conspiracy that she was putting together, to have 19 defendants in the courtroom, how would she do it? Well, they're being winnowed down uh, one by one. And what I can't help but wonder is what the strategy is in the district attorney's office. And I'd love to know behind the scenes. Obviously, the big fish, Trump, Giuliani, John Eastman, are people that they want to get. So does the DA have a list and an order in which they are going to these these defendants and trying to get them to make plea deals as they move up the chain? Or is it the other way around? Are the defendants recognizing I don't want to go to jail over this. I'll take a plea. I just think it's, that's a fascinating uh, thing to think about. Yeah, Tia, this is kind of like that domino effect. Um, <laughs> you know, something that I always go back to that, that uh, Shannon McCaffrey, the, the co-host of the Breakdown podcast, who came on a couple of days ago, said, you know, people always asked her, how can Fonnie Willis try 19 defendants in Fulton County at the same time? Well, that was never the strategy. It was always to kind of winnow that list. But at some point... You, the winnowing stops, and you you have to go after. And it's obviously Donald Trump is the top target, but Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, who else? Uh, who else are the other big fish that she's going to have to try to go after? Right, and I think as we talked about when Sidney Powell um, made her plea deal, you know these are some pretty big fish. Sidney Powell was considered, 
not just that her name's been around as part of the election conspiracy, but she was always one of those people that Trump talked about. My attorney, Sidney Powell, same thing now with Jenna Ellis, you know. To me, of course, they're not the top tier Trump being at the very top, but they're up there. They're not some of these co-defendants that most people have never heard of. So I think it is significant. It's significant that her charge, which is one count of aiding and abetting false statements in writings, is a felony. felony. So um, the fact that there are people that close to Trump, people who, again, Trump himself said, these are the people who are representing me, um, are now being charged not just charged, pleading guilty to felonies. I think we can't, you know, overstate the the impact of this, the the seriousness of this. Greg, before we went on, you read us a statement, and I remember who it was by, so you can tell us uh, the reaction in the other direction, which was if making a false statement, and as Patricia points out, that's not illegal in front of a legislative committee, is a crime, then we have to build bigger uh, jails. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to think that prosecutors have a lot more on, on Jen Ellis than that, right? Yeah. She pled to l- lesser charges, and that goes to my question. Patricia, you know, there's this sense of momentum um, prosecutors always talk about it. There's this momentum in a, in a court case. And and as you see more uh, guilty charges being pled out, as you see more people flipping and, and agreeing to test, testify with prosecutors, I want to read you this, this instant analysis from Joyce Vance, a former federal prosecutor and also an MSNBC analysis, who said that Jenna Ellis was her pick to be next. Um, as a former deputy district attorney in Colorado, Ellis should know that that Sidney Powell's guilty plea signals trouble for her. Ellis has to be concerned that Powell will testify against her and that others may beat her to the door if she doesn't get a move on it. So there is that sort of pressure uh, when, when if you're a defendant, you see others flipping and you, you know that you might not get a, a, as good a deal today as you, as you have in three weeks or in a month or three months. Well, that's exactly right. And even as the Fulton County District Attorney was uh, bringing people in to testify before the special grand jury, we were noticing that these were concentric circles, like larger circles and then smaller and smaller and smaller all narrowing to Trump. If somebody else in your concentric circle has flipped, they have information on you. They have information on the conversations you had, on the advice you gave, on the texts you sent, on the phone calls you had. So uh, anybody who sees these people coming forward will say, oh my goodness, what do they know about me? And you have to be able to offer the district attorney something useful in order to negotiate your own um, potentially lesser sentence here. And so um, Jenna Ellis was in the room with Rudy Giuliani, with Donald Trump, with Mark Meadows. All of these people were in the room with her and with Sidney Powell. And so you've got to be thinking that they must be very, very worried. Right, and you would think that the remaining 15, again, especially, right, <laughs> trying to do math. Trying to do math, yes, <laughs> You know, um, and especially, again, there are people in the 15. If Jenna Ellis was having problems paying her bills, and quite frankly, Rudy Giuliani is having problems paying his bills. So think about the people who, again, aren't names that we really know. Um, you would, you could wonder what, they and their attorneys are thinking. And we keep saying that the more pleas we hear about, the more pleas 
that are actually, again, that domino effect you mentioned, Greg. So the question to me that I'm curious about, and I know no one can answer, is eventually there will be a trial, um, we think. There won't be 19 plea agreements, most likely. But what will that number be? You know, will it be 10? Will it be five? You know, I'm again, not that we can really answer that, but you would guess that there are more plea agreements to come, but you would guess at some point, like you said, we're going to have to move forward with with who's remaining and what that number will be. And guys, here's where we bring in a new element of the story. Because at any moment, Fonnie Willis could, uh, could issue a superseding indictment. There could be even more charges. But there's also a possibility of other state charges. Um, we just got a hold of a nearly 400-page GBI report about the GBI's own investigation of the data breach in Coffee County. Um, Attorney General Chris Carr has had this report for about two months now, and it is very detailed. It goes into depths about um, what the four co-defendants who were charged with the with the Coffee County data breach uh, were alleged to do and to have done, but also it names dozens of other. Uh, people not not doesn't connect them with any wrongdoing, but d- names dozens of others, including several of the unindicted, several of the thirty unindicted co-conspirators who are mentioned that the initial uh, Fulton County indictment. And Patricia, the question that a lot of people are asking right now is: Is the Republican Attorney General Chris Carr, who's known to have aspirations for governor in 2026, will he take the lead on any charges against anyone uh, in this Coffee County data breach? This puts Chris Carr in a really tough spot. Um, he uh, received a phone call, <clears throat> excuse me, from Donald Trump following the 2020 elections, um, looking to see would he be helping out on challenges to the electoral votes, to the electoral college. Um, it was uh, all that we understand a short phone call, but Chris Carr is um, at the same time. No huge supporter of Donald Trump, but has never also come out against Donald Trump in any appreciable way. He's certainly not a never Trumper. For anybody who wants to run statewide here in Georgia, being on the exact wrong side of Trump before you have gotten your name ID up, before um, any kind of uh, really clear field is set for uh, a potential run for governor, which is what we hear Chris Carr um, is interested in, that is a it, it, facing the potential of getting a bullseye on you from Donald Trump is very harrowing because right now he talks about. Fonnie Willis. He talks about Alvin Bragg. He talks about any of the other prosecutors as the enemy of the state, as uh, socialists, as radicals, as communists, as witch hunts. Will a Republican AG file charges against him? But with all of this evidence, we are asked constantly, why hasn't Carr done it yet? And Bill, it would not be the first time Chris Carr had a bullseye on his back from Donald Trump. Of course, he beat back a Trump blessed challenger, a Trump back challenger in last year's primary beat him by, you know, dozens of points. It was a landslide. Um, but still, you know, he, he was also kind of put in the same bucket as, as Governor Kemp and other allies by Donald Trump. Yeah. But, and I, but to pick up on, on Patricia's point here, the, the pressure on Chris Carr has really ratcheted up since two of the uh, defendants, uh, Sidney Powell and Scott Hall, who have, pl- have pled guilty, were involved in the Coffee County data breach. And so suddenly you ask the question even uh, uh, more pointedly, Chris Carr, what are you going to do about it? But Greg, I would really urge our listeners to read uh, the piece that you and Mark Nisi 
uh, uh, published because you really dug into this almost 400-page report, and you tell us that this whole thing really began in December of 2020 when an Atlanta attorney named Preston Halberton, who I, I was not aware of that name ever before, went to um, Misty Hampton. He wanted to investigate voting fraud. So he went to Misty Hampton, the election supervisor in County, uh, Coffee County, and asked for copies of absentee ballots. Uh, and she said, yeah, I don't see any reason why under Georgia law I can't do that, which triggered this entire episode. And one of the most interesting little tidbits, I thought, in your reporting was about the firm that was then hired to go down to Coffee County and do the technical uh, work to get into the Dominion voting machines to access voting data, Sullivan Strickler. They have always portrayed themselves as sort of innocents who just thought they were being hired, by the way, by Sidney Powell's nonprofit, um, to do this work that they thought was perfectly reasonable. But as you and Mark report, the uh, investigation by GBI shows that Sullivan Strickler, in fact, had a real stake in Donald Trump's trying to overturn the election. The head of the organization, the company, thought that Trump may have been denied the election illegally. I thought that was fascinating because they have not been thought of as being somehow, you know, participants in the conspiracy. In yeah, and we know the Fulton County DA's office is aware of the same report. They actually have the same report as well. Uh, we don't know why there haven't been more charges, but you know, there's also a likely, there's also potential that some of the f folks mentioned in this report might be cooperating with prosecutors. Who knows? Uh, we will find that out in the trial. But Tia, what I was also interested in is the resurgence, the reemergence of Lynn Wood. <laughs> and he was named about a dozen or so times throughout this GBI report. He had several meetings at his plantation in South Carolina. Uh, it's called the Tamatli Plantation. Apparently, it's it's this huge, giant, sweeping it's vista. Always, I just want to say it's always a red flag when people call their um, property a plantation. plantation. So that was our first indication. Um, but I, I just I want to go back to Chris Carr. Yeah, And, you know, I'm here in the flesh, so I'm going to make it maybe a little awkward in this room because I when I think about what we had been talking about, Chris Carr, on this podcast most recently, it was in the context of the RICO charges related to the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center that Chris Carr is so big on. Even today, his pinned tweet or whatever we call it on X is about that RICO indictment, which includes people who operated bail funds. And, and that moved relatively quickly, but he's got this 400 page report that dates back to 2020 and correct me if I'm wrong, radio silence. Yeah. Well, look, here's what we know from Chris Carr's office. They received that report in August of this year. Uh, August 21st, 2023. He also, they also, his office also received for computer forensics from the GPI on September 29th, 2023. So a couple weeks ago, what I was told by, uh, by aides to Chris Carr is that, that this is still active. They have not made a decision. They, they consider it an open and active matter. The official statement was they continue to coordinate with the GBI. Um, but we're, we're, we're talking about two months for this 400 or so page report, 392 pages. And we're talking about a month, three weeks for the computer forensics that go behind it. Um, I don't know what he'll end up doing. 
Uh, I know, as we all mentioned, though, Patricia, there's an immense amount of pressure. And he would be, I think, the only Republican official, you know, active, you know, partisan Republican official to seek charges against anything associated with Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election, certainly in Georgia, but maybe around the nation, should he move forward. Yes. And um, when Fonnie Willis moved to bring charges related to Coffee County, it was made clear very quickly and brought up, well, Coffee County is not technically within Fonnie Willis's yeah. jurisdiction yeah. as the Fulton County DA. However, she was able to loop it in as a part of this RICO conspiracy. Coffee County is most certainly within Chris Carr's jurisdiction as the AG of the entire state. And that's why we have been getting pinged consistently and constantly. What is AG Chris Carr doing about Coffee County? Because obviously, Fonnie Willis felt like there was criminality there. Um, when we contacted his office consistently, they would say this is an ongoing GBI investigation. Now that we've seen this report, Greg, a quick question for you. Is this a final report? Is this something that he could act on eventually if he wanted to? Do you know the answer to that? That is a good question. I, I'm, it, it seems like a final report to me. It says Georgia Bureau of Investigation, Office of Special Investigations, Investigative Summary. Yeah, okay. Although they could always add amendments. <laughs> that um, sounds like a final report to me. <laughs> we got to take a quick, quick break. Still to come, it's the story we can't seem to escape. Republicans will try again today to elect the Speaker of the House. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Our colleagues at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you informed on all the developments in the Fulton County case against Donald Trump. And now the AJC is putting all of our coverage into one place with the Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. Sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. It's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter for the Trump 19 newsletter, even though it's more like the Trump 15 right now. Well, Tia, you're here with us in Atlanta. And while you must feel a little bit of relief, you're not chasing Republican members of the Georgia delegation <laughs> around the marble floors of the Capitol. You're still keeping an eye on the efforts to elect the speaker. And we just heard from Georgia Congress member Austin Scott, who is asked about what happened in a closed door meeting last night when he expressed his views and his plan for seeking the speaker's gavel. Let's take a listen. I feel like there are a lot of members in our conference that have what it would take to be the Speaker of the House. I do not in any way, shape, form, or fashion think I'm the only person in the Republican conference that has what it takes to be, be the Speaker of the House. I told my colleagues, if you'll accept someone who's honest, who's got courage and a strong work ethic, I would love to be your Speaker. Tia, the Tifton Republican told, told you during his last lightning bid for U.S. House Speaker that he hardly had enough time to tell his wife he was running, let alone other members of the delegation. Not a single one ended up voting for him. This time, he has more of a, a more level playing field. He's, he has just enough time as, as the other uh, seven rivals for the Speaker's gavel. What's behind his strategy? So he did get some of the delegation, I think one or two. Okay. Um, that was back on October 13th. So a million eons ago at this point. Today, I do have the latest, which again, by the time, 
most people hear this won't be the latest, but as of recording, they have gone through one round of voting. And so the way it's going to work is you got to get someone who gets to majority, which there are 212 House Republicans, if everyone's there, if there are no absences. So you got to get, again, math, 106. If no one gets 106, that's a majority. Well, I guess 107. They'll drop the lowest person and then vote again. <laughs> They'll just keep voting in rounds. It's like Survivor. So, They're voting yeah, people off the island. <laughs> there was another person who dropped out this morning. So it was seven for round one. Austin Scott was in fifth place after round one with 18 votes. So he survived round one. Um, again, as we record, they're in round two. I think it's going to be a long shot. As we've been saying, GOP Whip Emmer is the front runner. He did get the most votes in round one, 78. I think um, the person who's probably going to challenge Emmer the most is Byron Donalds of Florida, who was kind of the Tea Party Freedom Caucus candidate. He got 29 votes in round one. The question isn't whether Donalds can get to a majority. The question is, are there people who currently support Byron Donalds who will never support anyone else? I think the real headline out of all of what Tia just said is Republicans uh, decide they like ranked choice voting. <laughs> <laughs> but he's a, he's a really far right. You said former Tea Party, Byron Donaldson. Um how does he compare, say, to a Jim Jordan? He's kind of in that same mold or no? He's not as much of a flamethrower, partially because he hasn't been around that long. Okay. He's, he hasn't been in Congress. He's only in his like second or yeah. third term. Um, so Jim Jordan came in as a flamethrower and then mellowed out. Byron Donalds is a lot slicker. He loves talking to the media. He loves going on TV, whether it's Fox News or CNN. He loves the camera. He's a good looking guy. You know, he's one of those kind of um, uh, d does well for himself. But some people think that he's too much of a grandstander, which is why there are people who don't think he should be speaker. But he is pretty conservative. He's a big Donald Trump guy. Um, Policy-wise, there's probably not a lot of light, um, a lot of daylight between him and Jim Jordan. But approach-wise, he's not as much of a flamethrower. Mm. I would also like to say he's a graduate of Florida A&M, I believe. Yeah, a rattler. <laughs> he is a rattler. So, he I mean, is. that speaks volumes about his well, potential maybe in this be world. homecoming with you this weekend. <laughs> he yeah. has not been he very be active. <laughs> but, but I will say, you know, I know Byron Donalds from when he was in the Florida legislature. And at the time, I was a state house reporter in Florida. He was very active with the Black Caucus. He calls a lot of members of the Black Caucus, both in Florida and the Congressional Black Caucus. He's very friendly with them. I was at a CBC party hosted by Lucy McBath and Nakima Williams. Byron Donalds was there enjoying T.I., the performance. Mm -hmm. um, but the Congressional Black Caucus will not let him join officially because they say they don't really let Republicans join the Congressional Black Caucus. They consider it a Democratic um group, but he's cool with a lot of Democrats. They don't agree with him policy-wise, but he counts a lot of them as friends. friends. Yeah, and the first two Republicans to endorse his bids for speaker were Mario Diaz-Balart and um, Carlos Jimenez, who were the two who were most vocally against Jim Jordan. So to me, Donalds could kind of build this coalition 
the fact that he's only been in Congress for two plus years is a huge downside because he's not going to know a lot about the rules of the House. However, he also is going to be one of the few people who just hasn't had the time to make the enemies that are coming out with the knives for everybody else. So he and what if Republicans had the first black speaker in front of right. the Democrats? I, I think that's a big reason why even so during the let's go back to many, many eons ago, Kevin McCarthy speakers, 12, 15 rounds in January. Byron Donalds was nominated for speaker during some of those 15 rounds by the people who opposed Kevin McCarthy. And he got pretty decent support. And he got decent support. Um, And one of the nominating speeches mentioned we should have our first black speaker, Byron Donalds, not wait for Democrats to make Hakeem Jeffries the first black speaker. One thing is for certain, this three-week battle for the gavel doesn't seem like it's going to end anytime soon. And we also have heard from plenty of Democrats, including the DNC, which says enough with the GOP clown show. So we'll see. I'm sure we'll be talking about this again tomorrow, the next day, and the day after that. Have a question you'd love for us to answer here on Politically Georgia? Well, you can join the growing numbers of folks who are sending in their inquiries to us. You can call the Politically Georgia call-in hotline anytime. Leave a question. And we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the show. The number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. We cannot wait to hear from you. Producer Shani B and his legion of interns are standing by waiting for your calls. Well, that is all the time we have for today's podcast. We're now releasing new episodes every weekday. So look for new additions to hit your podcast app sometime around 1 p.m. each day. All of this leads up to our exciting October 30th debut of our new Politically Georgia radio show, which will air Monday through Friday mornings at 10 on WABE. Join us again for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.